Our scripture reading is from Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. You can find that also in your Pewback Bibles on page 909, 909. That's Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all, all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's good to see you this morning. We have a lot of visitors. We're really thankful for your presence. I know a lot of you are here because you're traveling for the holidays this week. We're so thankful that you've come to worship God with us. I need to warn you because some people will get disturbed by this. That behind me is the only slide I have prepared for this lesson. And so five, 10 minutes from now, somebody's gonna be really antsy. Why hasn't he advanced the slide? Let me show you the next one. The next one is almost persuaded. <laughs> Just so you're aware, there's nothing I'm forgetting to do, at least not as far as that's concerned up here. But uh, just wanted you to be, uh, to be aware of that so that nobody's upset. Um, open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You can just leave your Bible open to that chapter. We're going to be making reference to it throughout the study this morning. There are three days of great consequence in human history, and they all happened seven weeks apart. The first day of great consequence is the day that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Day number two is the day that he rose from the dead, three days later. It was a Sunday morning, Matthew 28 verse one, and the tomb was opened and Jesus walked out. And the third day of great consequence is the day of Pentecost. 50 days later, it's the day that the church began. It's impossible to overstate the importance of Acts chapter 2 in the Bible. In fact, you might even say it this way. Before Acts 2, everything that the Bible says was leading up to this day. And after Acts chapter 2, everything that the Bible says looks back to this day. Sometimes Acts chapter 2 is called, rightly so, the hub of the Bible. I want to talk to you about that day this morning. I want to talk to you about what happened on the day of Pentecost because the events of Pentecost are so consequential, they're so important, you and I cannot live and be ignorant of what happened that day and what it means for our lives. It is the day that the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached for the very first time with its implications for New Testament Christians' lives. It's the day when the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was preached and people heard what they need to do in response to that. That's what Acts chapter 2 is all about. It's about God's plan and Jesus Christ being unveiled, being revealed for all the world. It's a day of great things. And what I'd like for us to do with our study is just look at seven great things about the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Seven of them. First, 
The day of Pentecost was a great day. It was a great day. Look in your Bible at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It begins, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And living in Katy, Texas in 2023, that may not mean a great deal to us, but it meant a great deal to ancient Israelites. The day of Pentecost had been a part of Israel's culture. It had been part of their religious observance for hundreds of years. If you go back in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 23 and begin in verse 15, you'll find the prescriptions that God made for Pentecost. In Leviticus 23 verses 15 through 22, the Bible tells Israelites that they are to count 50 days from Passover. And at Pentecost, they're supposed to come 50 days later and they're supposed to bring the first fruits of their crops. Pentecost always happened in the late spring or early summer of the year. And if those of you who have had a garden or maybe even done some farming in your lives, you know that the first time that you are able to harvest the wheat is usually late spring, early summer. And so God said to the Israelites, I want you to take an offering out of the very first of what I provide each year and I want you to bring that to the temple and I want you to offer it in worship to me. So Pentecost had to do with a harvest. It had to do with giving thanks to God for what he provided every year, year after year consistently. On the day of Pentecost, people from all over the world would have come to Jerusalem just for this festival. Again, seven weeks after Passover. In fact, if you're reading Leviticus 23, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says that you are to count seven weeks and then one day, 50 days after Passover. And what's interesting about that, brothers and sisters and friends, Passover was always on a Sabbath. And so, if you count one day and then seven weeks, Pentecost was always on a Sunday. You know, sometimes people ask, why do Christians, why do New Testament Christians meet on Sunday? Because, number one, Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, first day of the week. Again, Matthew 28, verse 1. And because, number two, the day of Pentecost, the church began on a Sunday, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It was a great day. Not only was Pentecost associated in people's minds with a harvest, but it was also associated with the giving of the law. Because if you remember your Old Testament history, in Exodus chapter 12, the Bible says that those Israelites that were leaving Egypt, they, they put the blood on their doorposts and God passed over those doors, those homes where the blood was, and they all left in the middle of the night from Egypt. They escaped from Egypt, delivered by God. And it wasn't very long after that that they arrived at Mount Sinai where God gave the law. As a matter of fact, Exodus 19 verse 1 informs us that it was three new moons afterwards that they arrived at Mount Sinai where God blessed them and gave them his law. And so Pentecost in many Jewish people's minds was not just associated with the harvest, it was associated with the giving of the law of Moses. And isn't it interesting and appropriate that God chose the day of Pentecost a day when people were thinking about harvest, a day when people were thinking about the law. God chose the day of Pentecost to reap a great harvest by giving the new law, the new covenant of Jesus Christ. It was a great day. Second, this morning, as you study Acts chapter two, you'll notice there was a great audience present. 
A great audience present on the day of Pentecost. Look at Acts chapter two, verse five in your Bibles. In Acts chapter two, verse five, the scripture says, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation. You see that? People from all over the world had come to Jerusalem. Not only that, but it starts to list where they're from in about verse nine of Acts chapter two. And it lists no less than 16 nations or regions of the world. In fact, if you could put a map up here, you could see people came from all over the place. They came from as far away as Rome and Libya. They came from as far away as Babylon and Persia on the other side. People had come to Jerusalem, they'd made this journey so that they could be present on this Pentecost day. An audience from all over the place. And it's interesting too what God does. As you read Acts chapter two, verses one through four, the apostles are waiting together in an upper room. They've been told to do that by Jesus. And the scripture says that there's a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. And the Bible says there there are tongues of fire that appear on their heads. And the Bible says that they begin to speak in other tongues, Acts two, verse four, as the spirit gave them utterance. And that becomes really important on the day of Pentecost because you've got this massive influx of people in Jerusalem. They've come from all over the world. And now God has made a miracle where these people can hear the gospel in their own languages. Look at Acts chapter two, verse eight. What does it say? What do the people say in Acts two, verse eight? They remark, they exclaim, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then again in verse 11, Acts chapter two, verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretan and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. They are able for the first time to hear about what Jesus has done for them and they're able to hear in their own language, this audience on the day of Pentecost. That's what tongue speaking was as a miracle. It was always being able to speak a language that you have never studied but you're able to speak it as fluently as a native, great accent and everything. That's what the miracle of tongue speaking was. And these people are able to hear the apostles who are from Galilee, not exactly known for being a place of great enlightenment and education, but these apostles are able to speak languages that they've never spoken before because a miracle's been done. You know, it's been often observed that in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, maybe you're familiar with that, At the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, mankind came together and there was only one language in the world. And God saw what mankind was doing. It was evil, it was wicked, and so God confused their languages so that they'd be scattered abroad over the earth. God invented languages. And then in Acts chapter two, God undoes everything that he did at the Tower of Babel. In Acts chapter two, God allows everybody, no matter what language they speak, to be able to be united into one body. It was a great audience on that day. And they all had the opportunity, no matter what language they spoke, they were included in the hearing of the New Testament gospel for the first time. It was a great audience. Third, As you look at Acts chapter two, notice there were great preachers on that occasion. People need to hear preaching. 
and what is preached is of utmost importance. The gospel of Jesus Christ has power to save people from their sins. Romans chapter one, verse 16. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the preaching of the word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And so on this day, it only makes sense that God would select men who were great, outstanding preachers of his word. Not because they were dynamic or not because they had some kind of eloquence necessarily, but because, get this now, these men had been with Jesus. It was the apostles who preached on that first day. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The only one who wasn't there is Judas. Judas had betrayed Jesus seven weeks earlier and he had gone out and committed suicide. And so in Acts chapter one, verses 21 through 23, they selected a replacement for Judas. And the qualification, the the requirement for someone who could take Judas's place, one of the qualifications was he had to have been with us from the first. He had to have been a witness of all that Jesus said and did. In other words, we have to select an apostle to replace Judas of of the people who know Jesus, who have been with him. And so on the day of Pentecost, Matthias, who is selected, stands up with the other 11. And on that occasion, in Acts chapter two, those 12 men who had been with the Lord, they preached the sermon about salvation, about becoming a New Testament Christian. They preached the sermon that day people today, brothers and sisters and friends, they need to hear from people who have been with Jesus. Even today, none of us are apostles. None of us will ever be apostles. The last apostle died 2,000 years ago. However, it is highly significant that these men had followed Jesus. They had learned from Jesus. They knew who Jesus is and they wanted to proclaim him. They wanted to emphasize him. In Acts chapter four, verse 13, a couple of chapters after Acts chapter two, the Bible says that when they heard about Peter and John and their boldness, the scripture says they realized, they recognized that they had been with the Lord. They'd been with Christ. You know, when you've been with Jesus, when you have a relationship with him, when you truly know him, it comes across in how you treat people. It comes across in what you say and how you say it. It makes a difference and it makes an impact. And the church today, as much as ever, more than ever, needs to hear from people who know the Lord and who have been with Jesus Christ, who have spent time with him. It's not just an academic, we're going through the book of Romans one more time kind of approach. It's this is the word of the living Christ and we need to hear him. We need to pay attention to his word and his message. That's the kind of preaching people need to hear today. And may it ever be so in the Lord's church that we emphasize preaching like that. Great preachers present. They were submissive to the Lord. He told them to wait in Jerusalem, Luke 24, verse 49. And they were doing just that in Acts chapter two, verses one and two. They were together waiting until the spirit was poured out upon them. That's what people need today. Fourth, as you look at Acts chapter two, there was a great sermon. So you set this up. It's a great day, a lot of people in town, great audience, great preachers. And number four, there is a great sermon that begins. In Acts chapter two, verse 13, the accusation is made. Maybe these men are drunk. This is strange. It looks like their heads are on fire, by the way. Holy Spirit's miracle being done. That would have gotten people's attention and that was exactly why that was the case. 
Why does it look like their heads are on fire? Because God wants to get their attention. You remember back in the book of Exodus? Moses is out there shepherding his sheep and he looks and he sees a bush off in the distance and it looks like it's on fire. And what's God doing? God wants to meet with Moses and so this bush looks like it's on fire but it's not consumed. The same concept is found in Acts 2. These men's heads look like they're on fire and they're speaking in other languages and the people say, oh, these men are drunk, they're full of new wine. We might say it this way today. They must be on something. That's the way we'd say it. And they're kind of laughing at what the apostles are saying and they're laughing at what they're doing. And so in verse 14, Peter stands up and Peter begins to make a defense. And in verses 14 through 21, he says to his audience, what you're seeing is actually a fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophet Joel spoke about. In Joel chapter two, verses 28 through 32, he promised, he prophesied that God was gonna pour out his spirit on all flesh. And this is that. What you're seeing today is exactly what was prophesied 800 years ago, eight centuries ago. I might make a note here. Peter's audience was biblically literate. When he said, this is what Joel spoke about, nobody in the audience said, wait a minute, who's Joel? Who is this Joel and who is this prophet that you speak of? They knew Joel, they knew the old law, they knew the Old Testament like the back of their hands. And so they all would have been tracking with Peter from the beginning. This is what Joel spoke about. And then the sermon really gets going in verse 22. In Acts 2, verses 22 through 36, you've got the sermon that Peter preached. I want you to notice first, it is all about Jesus. From start to finish, it's all about Christ. I want you to notice there are four main points in Peter's sermon. Point number one is in verse 22 the credentials of Jesus, the credentials of Jesus. He is a man attested unto you by signs and miracles and wonders which God worked through him among you as you yourselves know. That's what Peter begins with. Jesus is not somebody that nobody recognizes. He is one of the most famous people in Israel even though he was crucified seven weeks ago. You saw his miracles, you heard about him healing the multitudes. Some of you were even healed by him, Peter might have said. The credentials. Number two in this sermon is verse 23, his second point, the death of Jesus. The scripture says in verse 23, Peter said to his audience, this Jesus was crucified for two reasons. Number one, it was the determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God. In other words, what happened to Jesus did not take God by surprise. I'm really glad Peter said that. What he's saying is that it's not as if when the Jews rejected Jesus and they put him on the cross, it's not as if God said, well, I didn't see that coming. I never knew that that was how they were gonna treat my son. No, this was the determined purpose. This was the foreknowledge of God that Jesus was gonna die for our sins. But reason number two, Look at what the passage says in verse 23. You have taken with lawless hands and have crucified him. You've put him to death. You want to talk about a risky sermon. He's telling his audience, you crucified the very son of God. You put him to death with your lawless hands. It was wicked. It was evil. Everybody around him at his trial said he's done nothing wrong, but the masses still said crucify him and you crucified him. You put him to death. That's how the sermon begins. Those are the first two points. Point number three of Peter's sermon. 
the, resur- uh, the resurrection of Jesus. God raised him up. Look at verses 20, uh, 24 through verse 32. Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through 32. It's point number three of Peter's sermon, the resurrection of Jesus. If you look at verse 24, it says God raised him up. If you look at verse 32, it says God raised him up. And we're all witnesses of this. And what he does in the interim is he gives evidence because points number one and two, the audience would have been familiar with. Yeah, we've seen Jesus and his miracles. And yeah, he was crucified. Everybody knows about that seven weeks ago. It's big news in Israel. It's big news in Jerusalem. But then when he gets to the resurrection, he's got to give some defense. He's got to give some evidence. What do you mean he rose from the dead? And so Peter does the following. He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes specifically from Psalm 16. You see that? David spoke of this. The Lord's not going to leave my soul in Hades. He's not going to allow my body to see see corruption. He quotes from the scriptures. And he says, David foretold. He was a prophet and he foretold of this, this was going to happen to the Messiah. And then Peter says, and we've seen him. We're witnesses. We've seen the risen Lord. We've spent time with him. And again, If you come to me and say, you know, God spoke to me last night, I'm going to be really skeptical. Unless he's speaking to you through his word, I don't know that God is, I don't believe God is speaking to people directly anymore. I don't believe that happens. What is he saying that's not already found in his word? And if he's saying something different than what's found in his word, why are you getting special revelation? I don't believe that's happening anymore. But if you say God spoke to me, I'm going to be skeptical. But if you say God spoke to me and it looks like your head's on fire, And you can change languages just like that. You want to speak Chinese fluently. You want to speak Korean fluently. All of a sudden with an accent and everything, you are able to speak as fluently as you can. Then I might listen. And Peter says, we, whose heads look like they're on fire, we are all witnesses. Jesus rose from the dead. We've seen him with our eyes. That's point number three of his sermon. And then point number four begins in verse 33 and continues through verse 36. Point number four, the exaltation of Jesus. Because you might legitimately ask on the day of Pentecost, where is he? Peter, you said he's risen from the dead. You said you've seen him. Okay, hypothetically, let's say we believe you, Peter. Where is Jesus then? Oh, he's been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. And again, Peter quotes Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 110, verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he concludes this way. In Acts two, verse 36, this great sermon concludes with Peter saying, let all the house of Israel assuredly know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord, he's the authority, and Christ, he is the anointed of God. God has exalted him to the right hand of his throne. He ascended. That's why he's not physically, visibly present. But he's poured out this, which you now see in here. He's he's the one that's doing these miracles through us. That's the sermon. The credentials, the death, the resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter preaches. A couple of observations before we move on. This sermon was Christ-centered. This sermon focused on Jesus Christ and what he's done for the world. The church needs to hear sermons like that. People need to hear lessons like that all the time. Christ-centered. Let's make him the focus of all that we do. 
We don't preach ourselves, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves your servants for his sake, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. But notice as well this sermon, it's got clear organization, it's got clear logic to it. And notice that this sermon gives evidence, especially scriptural evidence. He appeals to the Old Testament. He appeals to the scriptures. It is written. This is what God said, what's going to happen. And this is exactly what's happened. People need to hear preaching like that. Not preaching that's fluffy and full of jokes and stories with very, very little scripture. That's not healthy. That's not helpful. We're talking about scripture-saturated lessons. That's the kind of preaching that Peter did on the day of Pentecost. Five, fifth. As you look at Acts chapter 2 and this consequential day when the church began, there was a great question. Look at Acts 2.37. There was a great question. The Bible tells us that the people that were present on that occasion were cut to the heart. And they cried out, men and brethren, brothers, what shall we do? A couple of observations. Number one, when people hear the message of Jesus and the cross, that is what will cut people to the heart. These people were asking sincerely, what shall we do? We have, we have wronged God. We have crucified his son. We have put him to death on a cross. What can we do about this? You know, not everybody asks questions like that religiously. There are a lot of people in our lives who will ask religious questions and it's not because they've been cut to the heart, it's because they're maybe trying to start an argument or maybe they're trying to, trying to stir up some controversy. There are a lot of people that ask questions for those reasons. That's not these people on the day of Pentecost. And let me implore you and ask you, have you ever gotten to the point in your life where you have sincerely asked, I've wronged God, I have offended him, I am lost. What can I do? If you've never come to that point in your life, can we at least sit down and talk about the Bible and talk about what Jesus has done for you? Because that's a prerequisite for salvation. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, verse 3. Jesus said, I didn't come to call righteous people, I came to call sinners to repentance. Mark chapter 2, verse 17. We need to ask the question in sincerity, what shall we do? And then notice, observe secondly, implied in the question is the idea that a response is needed. God paid for all of our sins through what Jesus did for us at the cross and God exalted Jesus to the right hand of his throne where he rules now in heaven forever and ever. And yet, and yet, God asks for a response from us. God is saying, I have offered you salvation. I have made an offer to you. And they ask, what, shall, what must we do? They understand there's a conditional response implied. Later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, a Philippian jailer would ask the same question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is maybe the most important question you could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? There's a great answer, number six. Look at verse 38 of Acts chapter two. Let's notice first of all what Peter did not say. I think this is important. 
In Acts 2 verse 38, I want you to understand this is the very first time in human history that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has been preached along with its implications for your lives. If there's anywhere in the Bible that you can learn what must I do to be saved, this has to be it. This is not the time to be unclear. This is not the time to be cryptic. This is the time to tell people plainly what must they do to be saved. Doesn't that make sense? First time the gospel's been preached. And so Peter did not say, number one, thank God he didn't say this. There's nothing you can do. You killed Jesus. All you can do is suffer the consequences. There's no response that you can make that's gonna make up for this. Peter did not also say, all you need to do is just intellectually believe and assent that Jesus is God's son. Just if you believe that, no problem. Peter gave them something to do, didn't he? Peter did not say this, and I mean no unkindness. He did not say to his audience, I want everybody to bow your heads to his audience. I want everybody to say this prayer, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and save me. I'm so sorry for my sins. He did not lead them in a sinner's prayer. As a matter of fact, you can read the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation and you will never find anyone who was told to say a sinner's prayer in order to be saved. If you don't find it in scripture, why do people teach others to do that today? Here's what Peter did say. Look at Acts 2.38. Repent. What must we do? Peter said, repent. He used the second person plural. All of you, repent. Y'all, repent. Repentance, brothers and sisters and friends, is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. Repentance means that we do a 180 in our lives. 180, it means we make a about face. I've been living my life for me. I've been living my life my way. I've been living the way I want to live. Repent means I'm gonna turn away from what I want and I'm gonna do from now on what God wants. Repent. And so the first thing these people on the day of Pentecost were told to do is to repent. Change your mind. Seven weeks ago, you thought the right thing to do was to hang Jesus on a cross and watch him die. Repent. Remember that God has a plan and God's plan goes through Jesus. In him alone, you will find salvation. John 14, verse six. In him alone, you will find a way to God. Acts chapter four, verse 12. Repent. And then he says, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ by his authority. Where is he? He's at the right hand of God's throne. That's what I just preached, he says. Be baptized in his name for the remission of your sins. It's a great answer. Great question, but even better answer. Repent and be baptized. Brothers and sisters and friends, when people on the first day the church ever existed asked, what must we do in response to this gospel preaching? They were told to repent and to be baptized. And they were told that the purpose of their baptism, you see that word for in your Bible, for the remission of sins or for the forgiveness of sins, some translations have. That word for is the word eis, E-I-S in Greek. And it means for the purpose of. It always looks forward to something. 
so that you can obtain the forgiveness of sins. That's what that word means. And so these people were told to be baptized for the remission of their sins and that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what was preached on the day of Pentecost. And notice, number seven this morning, the great response. The sermon continued in Acts chapter two, verse 40. Many other words Peter preached, the apostles preached. They preached in lots of languages. They preached lots of words that day. But the Bible says in verse 41 of Acts chapter two, on that day, about 3,000 decided that they were gonna obey the gospel, that they were going to be baptized. And they became the very first New Testament church. And I want you to notice as you look at verses 42 through 47, this was not just a decision that they made and then they went on their merry way and never ever associated with other Christians again. No, the Bible says they continued, verse 42, steadfastly, constantly. They continued listening to the apostles. They continued praying together and having fellowship with one another and observing the Lord's Supper together continually over and over, week after week. These people became a community. They became a family. They became the body of Christ. That's what they became. Can I just say some things about these people? If you could get in a time machine and go back to the day of Pentecost and just kind of live with them for a little while, maybe after two or three days after Pentecost, you walk up to one of your new brethren in Christ and you say, you know, what denomination are we? What are they gonna say to you? Three days after Pentecost, what, what, uh, what, what affiliations do we have? Who, who are our brethren and who, who should we stay away from? They're gonna look at you like you're crazy. You know and why? Because on the day of Pentecost, that church, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, it was pre-denominational. And not only that, it was undenominational. And it was non-denominational. And as you look through the pages of Scripture, they were anti-denominational. Let there be no divisions among you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians chapter 4, verses one, verse 3. And let there be one body and one faith and one hope. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. That's what these people were. And I want to tell you, in all sincerity, I do not want to be a part of a denomination called the Church of Christ. If the Church of Christ is a denomination, I don't want to be a part of it because the church I read about in Scripture is pre-denominational and it is anti-denominational. I don't want to be a part of a denomination. What I believe is this, I believe that these people, if you ask them, who are you? They would say, we are the church that belongs to Christ. It is a designation of relationship, it is not a denominational name. When people address me, sometimes they'll say, hey, aren't you Angie's husband? And I'll say, yeah, that's not my name, but yeah, I'm Angie's husband. That's a designation of my relationship to her. Church of Christ is just a designation of relationship. Brothers and sisters and friends, that's all it is. Who are you people three days after Pentecost? We are the church of Christ. That's what they would have said. What do you mean by that? I mean that we are the people who are related to Jesus. That's all we mean. It's not, it's not some title. It's not some proper name like John or Bill or Ted. It's not any of those things. It is a name 
That is a designation of relationship, and that's all it is. In churches of Christ, brothers and sisters and friends, we believe this. We believe that if we go back and do right now what we see them doing then, if we do now what they did then, we will be now what they were then. What were they? They were Christians. They were disciples. They were the church of Christ. Not a denominational name, but rather the people that belong to Jesus. Sometimes they called themselves the church of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Sometimes they called themselves the people of the way, but they had no divisions. And our plea with the world is, let's go back to that day and let's think about the implications of what happened on that day because I know for a fact that what happened on that day was God's will. Let's do that. Maybe you're here this morning, you'd like to be a part of that church that we read about in Acts chapter two. There's no better time, no better place than to put Christ on in baptism right here and right now. If we can help you with that, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.